That's a hard act to follow. Uh, parents, I will say you're doing a wonderful job of being fruitful and multiplying. That is a whole lot of kids, right? And they weren't coming, they were just all coming through one time. My little granddaughter, my three-year-old granddaughter stopped right here and um, looked at me and it just totally fried her categories. She didn't know what to do with grandpa uh, right there. Um, she frankly doesn't know what to do with Easter. She told us this week she's not so sure she wants to come to Easter because it's about an angel appearing to some people in a cave. And it's dark, and so she, you know, we, we just got to work with her a little about the wonder of Easter. Now, that's next week. Today is Palm Sunday. Now, it's critical, and here's why. It begins the most important week in the life of the most important person who has ever lived. So we call it Holy Week, and the person is uh, Jesus Christ. Now what I want you to do before we get into our passage today is I want you to take this insert out that's in your worship folder because I want to talk about it uh, for a minute. We put this together some years ago. It's really Wheaton Bible Church's Holy Week scriptural guide so you can go day by day. I want to encourage you to set aside some time each day this Holy Week and to go through these different passages so you can better understand what Jesus went through this week and ultimately so you can more uh, deeply appreciate his incredible love, the extent of his love. That way when you come back to one of our many different Good Friday services or you bring your guests and come here for Easter, you're going to come out of fullness. A fullness because you have been thinking about meditating on all the wonder of what Jesus Christ did for you this week, Holy Week. Not quite 2,000 years ago. Because there is no week like this week that reveals the incredible love of God. All that he's given us in Jesus Christ. And it starts today, Palm Sunday, the beginning, the first day of this amazing week. And it begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem with the palm branches. That's why every year we have the children come through here. Now, this account of the triumphal entry is so important that it appears in all four of the Gospels. We want today to look at the last Gospel, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. So grab a Bible, it's page uh, 1065 in the Bibles in front of you, turn on your Bible, however you access it, and we're going to go to John chapter 12 and verse 12. Now one of the things I want you to note in the Gospel of John, we begin to see the importance of this week, because the Gospel of John is 21 chapters long. Holy Week begins almost in the middle, just a little over the middle, of the Gospel of John in John chapter 12, indicating how critically important the history, the details of this week are. Almost half the Gospel of John is dedicated to this one week. So what I'm going to do is we're going to kind of work our way through this passage. I'm going to read it and make some comments so we can uh, get a sense of the background, get a sense of the of the flow. Let's start with verse 1. I'm going to read it and make some comments. The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The feast is Passover. The great crowd is because this is the high point in the, um, 
year, spiritual year for people in Israel. And so there are crowds, crowd, million, two million people. A huge crowd coming in for this unbelievable week. Passover was a week-long celebration commemorating God's deliverance of Israel uh, from Egyptian bondage. And this particular um, Passover was electric. There was an expectation, an anticipation, a buzz, unlike any other of the preceding Passovers, because Jesus had been performing all these miracles. And just a couple days earlier, Jesus raised a man from the dead by the name of Lazarus. And so everybody is talking about it. Some people are coming to Jesus, they're turning to Jesus, they're um, giving their lives to Jesus, but every single Jew is talking about Jesus. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about, did you see, what, what were you there? Everybody's talking about Jesus. And what's happening is the crowd is caught up in a nationalistic, a, a political frenzy, if, if you will, because they believed that Jesus was about to come into Jerusalem and become the king and vanquish the Roman oppressors. And so that's kind of behind what's going on in verse 1, the reason for the great crowd. And then we come... To, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 12. Then we come to verse 13, and we read they took palm branches. That's just what we saw. Palm branches um, were a common way for um, people in Israel to honor a king, honor a dignitary. They're, they're waving them. We call it Palm Sunday because of these branches. And what's going on is the crowd with these branches is affirming that they believe Jesus is the king. Very interesting. And we continue, uh, they're shouting Hosanna, here quoting the Old Testament, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. So here the crowds are quoting Psalm 118, a messianic psalm that prophesied that there would be a day coming when the Messiah would come. The crowd is quoting that psalm because they're saying Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Uh, so what they're saying is that Jesus isn't merely a king, he's the king. The promise prophesied, king of kings, a messianic king who would come and make everything right, overthrow. So the crowd is openly declaring that Jesus, not Caesar, is the king. And they're making this an act of defiance, not just worship. And really what we have is a, a political rally, not merely a, a spiritual one. Now let's continue with verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey, sat upon it, as it is written. Here we have another Old Testament passage quoted. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now here, John, the writer of this gospel, is telling us Jesus intentionally, purposefully, and specifically fulfills a 500-year-old Old Testament prophecy found way back in Zechariah chapter 9. That the king would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt, a young donkey. 
In one of the other Gospels, we're told it was a, a, a young colt that was so young, never been ridden on, indicating, by the way, that it was set aside for sacred use. Now, no one, no one saw this donkey thing coming. I'll talk about it a, a little later. Because a, a, a donkey uh, isn't generally, sometimes, but not generally what kings ride. I mean, kings, when they're coming in to take over, they're riding a war horse. I mean, who rides a donkey? Hobbits? I, you know? <laughs> uh, little kids? Uh, so uh, the symbolism, because they're caught up in such a political frenzy, the symbolism of what Jesus does is totally lost on the crowds. And, and we see this in the next couple of statements, 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Uh, only after Jesus was glorified, that is, resurrected, did they understand that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now a lot of us today come to passages like this and say, You know, this isn't history. The Bible isn't reliable. Um, the Bible's giving us spiritual truths, not historical fact. But when we read an account like this, there is so much historical detail. We're given the name of the man that was raised from the dead. Uh, the authors are indicating they're writing history. Now, we have trouble with this for uh, other reasons, but one of the things we can't say is that this is not a historical account. It's full of history. It's placed in a historical context that all sorts of people could have denied if it was bogus. And here in this one act of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we call it the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus, who had repeatedly shied away from the public eye, goes public. I mean, the cameras are rolling. CNN is there. It's a huge deal. But what I want you to understand, by going public, Jesus is now intentionally crossing a line. This is now a point of no return. <laughs> there, there, there's no going back for Jesus. He's publicly declaring two things. First, I am the king. And second, I am a loving, merciful king who brings peace. Now the crowd was focusing on the second, totally, the first totally missed uh, the second. And let me just say to set this up, because I'm going to spend the rest of the morning unpacking these two things that Jesus is declaring. If you're ever, ever going to go anywhere with Jesus Christ, if Jesus is ever going to be anything to you, then it's got to start with understanding who he is, that he's the king. But, but the reality is, if we're honest, our lives are full of failure. We've made terrible decisions in the past. We've hurt others. We've been self-absorbed. 
Uh, we've done horribly stupid, sinful things. And we come to the table and we don't think we belong at the table. We're full of guilt and, and, and shame and it creates all sorts of disconnect. And so it's critical that we not only understand that Jesus is the king, but that we understand the type of king he was. He's a merciful king. He's communicating that boldly here. Who brings peace. So I'll get to those. Let's start, first of all, with Jesus' declaration that I am the king. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus chooses this moment, more people in Jerusalem than at any other point during the year, probably, and that Jesus does not squelch the crowd's worship, but instead accepts it and, you could say, encourages it. And that Jesus specifically does something to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. And even though it's 500 years old, you better believe Jesus knew it. And he rides into Jerusalem on this donkey in fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, when you take all this together, what it does is it demonstrates either one of two things. There are only two choices. Either Jesus is a lunatic or, or Jesus is the prophesied king, the anointed son of God. Coming to reclaim David's throne. Now, yes, the crowds are going to turn on Jesus in just a couple of days. Yes, they're going to crucify Jesus, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that sometimes the best place you can be is out of step with the crowds. Did you hear me? Sometime the, sometimes the best place you can be is out of step with the crowd. They're going to crucify Jesus, and, and, and they're going to do that because they wanted a, a political deliverer. Uh, but here, everything Jesus does at the beginning of this week is an unequivocal public claim to be the king, the messianic king. Now that means that when Jesus is crucified, he's not going to be a powerless victim. What it really means here is he, in the pro he is in the process of orchestrating his own assassination. Now let me say something about this that may surprise you, and you may have to hang with me for a couple of minutes on this. This idea of a messianic king and this isn't original with me, isn't merely a Jewish hope. It's a human hope. Not just a Jewish thing. It, it, it's a human thing that emerges in a variety of different cultures in a variety of different ways throughout history. Think of, what, 500 years ago, the King Arthur legends. Or, or more recently, the, the fascination different cultures have with royalty. The, the, the fascination. And the fact that so many different girls growing up in a variety of different cultures uh, uh, love to think of themselves as a little princess. A Cinderella waiting for the king to rescue. And then here closer to home in, in the U.S., what have we seen in, in movies over the last Oh, I don't know, 
uh, 10, 20 years, we, we've seen a growing number of movies about superheroes. Messianic figures of sorts. You see, the idea of a messianic king isn't merely an Old Testament Jewish thing. It is that. It's a human thing. It's a, it's a longing we all have. But here in America, and this is where it gets interesting, it's complicated for us because we believe in equality. Individual rights. Every, everyone's level. And no one tells us what to do, and we're not about to bow the knee to a sovereign, to a king. And man, that plays havoc with our soul. Because American or not, all of us as humans live in service to something or someone. And you say, not me. Man, I'm completely independent. Nobody tells me what to do. I live for my weekends. I live for this. I, and I'm autonomous. I'm calling all my own shots. And I say, oh, really? Uh, you're living in service to your independence. Your job? Many of us live in service to that. Family, sport. Uh, an ability, musical, athletic ability, our, our, our kids. There isn't a single person alive who is in control of their own lives. Because at the end of the day, uh, we, we've all been created for a purpose. We all long for a purpose. We all therefore live in service to someone or, or, or something. And now hear me. Control is an illusion. This autonomous notion of control, because we all bend the knee to something. Oh, he's got an alcohol problem. It's, it's visible. Uh, but she, man, she's totally independent. It's less visible, less tangible. We all bow the knee to, to a sovereign. Now, theologians say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you go back to the beginning of time, we were created in the image of God to live in submission to the King of Kings, uh, the infinite Lord of Lords. And that was uh, designed to be perfect and, and beautiful, but we fell. And so on, on the one hand, we have this longing for a superhero. But on the other hand, we really struggle to think about bowing the knee. We're Americans. And so we come to God's word, and as another has said, all the leaves, all the leaves of the Bible are rustling with the rumor that the true king is coming back to fulfill this Jewish, this human longing. And in the triumphal entry, Jesus Christ says, it's me. I'm the king. And here's why this matters. If you want Jesus Christ to be anything in your life, Uh, you must understand two things, that you think you're in control, but you're not in control. And number two, Jesus has come to regain control. He is the king. 
And, and so the, the question we want to wrestle with is, is Jesus the king of my life? And I'm not talking theoretically. I'm not saying, yeah, you believe that Jesus was this or did that. I, I'm talking about functionally, man. I'm talking about you understand the fact that you are not the king. Your job is not the king. Your, your, your kids aren't the king. Your marriage isn't the king. This hobby you have, this ability you have, not the king. Not even your preferences. Jesus is the king. And I, 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 I'm not saying, do you believe that? I, 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 do, you, do you believe he's the king? I'm saying, do you, do you serve him as the king? Let me give you three ways I've run across that you can know whether or not you're treating Jesus as the king. I gave these to our men on Thursday at our men's Bible study. Number one, one of the ways, main ways you can tell that Jesus is your king is if you worship him. You worship him. Now look at this passage from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper. Now, notice the last word is worship. What is worship? Well, according to this passage, worship isn't something you do for an hour a week. Worship is how you live your life. And the reality is we're all worshipers. We all worship something. So worship is a way of life. To worship something is to serve something. We're back to what's the king in your life. It's to honor it. It's to wrap your imagination around, uh, around it, to be captured by it. And someone has said, actually a guy by the name of William Temple, uh, said your religion is what you do with your solitude. When you're alone. And the problem is, increasingly, our, our, our technology is robbing us of our solitude. So I want to have a conversation with my son, Ryan, or, or one of our daughters. We just had a bunch of kids in town, uh, you know, last weekend. And, hey, how you doing? And, and I'm about to say something profound. I, I mean, I'm always saying something profound to my kids. <laughs> and, you know, um, they're in this conversation, and I look over. Well, hold on, Dad. You know, I got, you know, I got a text or, you know, it's somebody a thousand miles. Hold on, Dad. You know, I can't process what you're saying and I can't hear what's so very profound because I got this thing going on or I got this thing going on. Do you think it's any different with God? God has given us his son. God has given us his word because he wants to speak profound truth into our life. I mean, we're texting. Tweet and posting. And, and there's no solitude. And the test of your religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you daydream about? What captures your imagination? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Are there, are there verses? Romans 12, verse 1. Uh, a psalm you've been, been thinking about? That's a 24-7 gig. It's not a one-hour-a-week gig. Let me go on. The second test is you obey them. The crowds will pay lift service to Jesus, but they won't obey him. They're going to crucify him. Uh, they're going to ignore him. They're going to they're, they're turn his backs on him because they didn't like his plan. Does sound familiar? 
Well, we want this kind of God. You know, not this. What is obedience? Well, I addressed this last week when I asked the question, what is wholehearted devotion? The answer is the same. It's serving God without conditions. Without conditions. And if you and I obey God only when it's convenient, when it's easy, when we agree with God, then as I said, that's not obedience, it's just agreement, it's just convenience. And your 13-year-old says to you, man, uh, dad, you expect me to obey you? You're going to tell me why. Why I can't do this, why I can't go here. And your response, because you're a dad full of backbone and profundity and you say well you know son sorry I'm not going to tell you why Uh, because there's a big difference between what a 13 year old knows and what a 113 year old knows only the distance between us and God is infinitely greater and so you cannot, and, and I'm repeating myself here, some of the stuff I've been teaching about lately, you, you, you cannot uh, say to yourself, you know, there are certain things in the Bible that I'm cool with, certain things I'm not. Certain things I'm going to obey, certain things I'm going to, you know, X out. Like giving, tithing, sexual purity. Sometimes the best place to be is opposite the crowd. You know, if Jesus is, is your king, you're going to obey him, not selectively. You're going to give, you'll never do this perfectly, but you're going to give him, yourself to obeying him completely. And the third way, the third way you can know you're treating Jesus as a king is if you expect great things from him. And so you pray big prayers. You pray for healing. You pray for a transformation. You pray for salvation. You pray for revival. You pray that God will thwart the purposes of ISIS. You just pray. And you take big steps. You take big risks. Because your God is a big God, not a little God, not a God in a box. Now, yes, you will still suffer. Yes, God will still say no. But you know God wants to bless you with anything, anything, anything that is not bad for you. He's a big God, and you expect big things. So on Palm Sunday, uh, the the, the main takeaway, the triumphal entry, is that Jesus declares himself to be king. How are you doing with that? And, And I don't mean theoretically, I mean functionally. How's your week, this holy week, going to reflect that? Now let's go on. There's more because the triumphal entry also teaches us that Jesus is the merciful king who brings peace. You say, I can't get right with God because of my failure. Jesus says, I get failure. I have come to redeem it. And here we move from, the, uh, from who Jesus is to the nature of his reign, the nature of his person, to what type of king he will be. And and let me set it up this way. Jesus is the only king among millions of kings in our world. And all sorts of idols we turn into kings all the time. Jesus is the only king that won't oppress you. He is the only king that will not abuse you. He is the only king that will not deceive you, manipulate you, or um, uh, hurt you. Why? 
because Jesus is the gentle, merciful, loving king who enters Jerusalem not to execute justice, but to absorb justice, not to deliver judgment, but to absorb judgment by going to the cross and dying in our place for our sin. As our substitute. In order to think about this, break the back of guilt, shame, sin, evil, uh, hatred, uh, on and on. And to end, Jesus is going in Jerusalem to die, to end sin and judgment forever. That day is coming. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this is what uh, uh, the triumphal entry is about? That it's about this, it's a picture of this merciful, loving king because it's the point of the donkey. It's the point of the prophecy. It's why Zechariah 9, 9 is so important because the donkey was a symbol in the ancient Near East of peace and it's what kings would occasionally, not regularly, but occasionally ride to communicate peace and justice. And so Jesus riding this donkey, Jesus going to get this donkey is a public declaration that his mission is a peace mission. And if you go to the Gospel of Luke, let's put this passage up here. What's also interesting is that we are told Jesus is riding this donkey and weeping as he rides. Look at this passage. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, Even if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because they will reject Jesus. Uh, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within you. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now let me just say, there's a lot of things I could say, but please, please understand the crowd's got it wrong. Now if you understand that, that is life-changing. The majority got it wrong. They, they were wrong. And so what is this picture of Jesus? Jesus knows everybody's going to turn their back on him. But Jesus is riding on this gentle beast of burden, this donkey, and he's weeping as he rides. It's a picture of Jesus' love. And so let me say it again. Jesus is the only king that won't oppress you. He's the only king that won't abuse you. He's the only king that won't manipulate you. He's the only one that can control you without destroying you. I mean, try alcohol, try cocaine. Uh uh. Jesus Christ went into Jerusalem to die for you. And so because he is king, we worship him, we obey him. Uh, we expect great things from him. But because he is loving and merciful, uh, we can come to him just as we are, failure and all, all the horrible stuff we've done. And we can find comfort in him. We can find forgiveness and, and blessing in him because he went to the cross to die for our failure. 
And we find grace in his mercy. We find for, for, for forgiveness in his love. And, and, and Jesus, get the picture, see the history, understand the detail. Jesus loves you so much, he weeps as he rides. No one, no one, no one loves you like Jesus. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to die for us. Now, I, I, I've talked about how, how, how can you know if you're treating Jesus as king? Let me do the same here. How can you know you're living in light of Jesus' love? Three ways. You will have less fear, less anxiety, less worry. Fear is a parasite, parasite that feeds on the host of unbelief. Uh, fear is living life with a foot on the brakes. Or to change the auto metaphor, um, it, it's driving down the highway, but all you're doing is you're not looking out the windshield, you're looking in the rearview mirror because of all your regrets. And fear is walking by sight, not by faith. It's ultimately succumbing to the lie that you're not good enough. Look what you've done. That God can't accept you. That something or someone is bigger than, than God's love. It's a lie that God will not take care of me. God will not accept me. Um, uh, God will not sustain me. And I, and I want to say to you, anxiety, fear, worry is toxic to your soul. Fearing anything but God is. And what is the antidote? The antidote is telling yourself repeatedly what, what we see here. That people may reject you. The crowd may turn on you. Uh, your circumstances may be awful, pitiful. But God will never ever stop loving you. And one of the great New Testament pictures of that merciful, gentle love is Jesus riding on a donkey weeping into Jerusalem. Amazing, amazing picture. Jesus came to rescue me. Jesus came to rescue you. And when you inhale uh, the love of God in Jesus Christ, your house of fear, anxiety, and worry starts to come tumbling down. A second test. How do I know I'm living in light of the love of God? Uh, how do I know that, you know, this, this, this is real in my life? Is you're hopeful. Uh, the, the triumphal entry means you and I have every reason to hope. Now, there is no hope in the world, right? The world today seems to be getting scarier and scarier. I, I, a guy in our church, um, a, 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 a professor, um, gave me an article on ISIS. And one of the points of this profound article on ISIS is that ISIS has this millennial eschatology view that they view themselves, it's theologically driven, as one of the main things they're doing is bringing in the end of the age. And so if they take everybody down with them, the end of the age is going to come sooner. Whoa. There is no hope in the world. There is ultimately no hope in politics, uh, no hope in military. Hope, 2,000 years ago, rode on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. 
and knowing the love of God in Jesus Christ, even though the world around us is increasingly chaotic and increasingly wearisome, gives you hope no matter how dark, how dark the moment. Third, third test is you experience peace. Uh, now, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace isn't perfect kids. It's not a perfect this. It's not, uh, those things don't get, uh, exist. Those things are uh, illusions. Peace is a person that will be crucified on Good Friday. Uh, for your sin, for your sin, uh, that you might find uh, forgiveness and righteousness and eternal life, not because of anything in you, but because of what he has done for you. Look at this passage from Colossians 1, and then we'll conclude. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that would be Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, that's Good Friday, shed on the cross. It starts with the triumphal entry. And this divine offer of peace still stands. It still stands. And if you are here this morning and you have not come to Jesus Christ, uh, you have not said yes to him as your Lord and Savior, man, lay down your self-righteousness. Admit your rebellion and um, embrace the divine amnesty, the full and free pardon that God offers you in Jesus Christ. And the issue isn't your failure. It's Jesus' success. And if you are here and you've already done this, what does this week mean? Well, at the outset, it means he is the king. So you worship him, you obey him, you expect great things from him. And it means he loves you, he is merciful. And he is there for you. And so you can kiss worry and anxiety that, that chokes you goodbye. You can live a life of hope and a life of peace that's found only in him. This is a big deal this week. Please make it a big deal in your life starting today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you um, full of guilt and shame and um, embarrassment, and that creates all sorts of uh, disconnection. And, and we ask God that you would um, speak to us and reveal your love and your grace and your mercy that we see here. And I just want to pray for all these people, every single person here right now, that this week would be an incredible week for them as they see the incredible love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.